there is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain. I am your co-host, Kip Bodner. I am joined, as always, by my friend, Kieran. I haven't talked to you in a little while. My friend, Kieran Flanagan, you've been over in Dublin. You've been taking a little time, hanging with the fam. What's going on, man? Yes, and I'm still on vacation. So to all of our listeners, this is... <laughs> You're doing a little vacay break to come do a little pod, huh? I'm doing a pod. You don't get to go number one without making some sacrifices. So I have been off the past week. I've been hanging out with my brothers. They both listen to this. Colin and Steven, they're over from Sydney, doing some pitch and putting, doing lots of different dinners, lots of beach time, lots of trying to compete with my brothers to beat them at different things. So it has been a really great week. How's that going? How's the competition going we're all quite sporting but steven he's like does triathlons has done an mma fight uh usually wins most sporting competitions i was gonna say have you picked a game that you know you could win yet is really my question chess <laughs> don't have to that's your nice physically. way of saying i will beat them in their minds i will mind win i just will not physically win kieran we've got a dope show for everybody today really really good show but before we get into today's show which is all about distribution building distribution for your business I thought since you were hanging with the fam, I had some interesting data that I wanted to share with you and the listeners that was the tweet that I found most interesting since you and I last talked. Okay, you ready for this? I'm ready. Love data. All right. So it is by Derek Thompson, who's a writer for The Atlantic. He hosts a podcast as well called Plain English. I thought this was really great. He shared a chart on time spent in your life and time spent with different groups of people. And so... Your time spent with your family peaks at 15 years old. Oh, wow. Your time with friends peaks at 18 years old. Your times with coworkers peaks at 30. Time with children peaks at 40. The time with your partner peaks at 70. And then the last peak at the end of your life is the peak of your time alone. Oh, God. <laughs> I looked at this chart and I was like, this, uh... I was like, this sucks. This is garbage. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know if this is a good opener. This seems... Your time with your friends peaks at 18. That's pretty incredible. Yes. What's interesting is the change of the slope of this. And it's like your friends basically starts out high when you're a kid and just slowly decreases your entire life. Oh, my God. It basically... Starts up, goes up, peaks at 18, and then basically from 18 through the rest of your life just slowly decreases. And this is based on a study, I forget, of like a thousand people who they followed like a longitudinal study of. But wow, it's kind of crazy, right? It kind of blew my mind. And, and this is my long-winded way of saying it. It's like, I think we have to do a podcast forever because I don't want to end my life alone. <laughs> <laughs> the 40 to 70 with just your partner is like... It's rough. That's rough. It seems super <laughs> rough. <laughs> No offense to partners all around the world, but come on, 30 years? <laughs> Super rough. I just thought it was a really fascinating chart. And what it really shows to me is that you have to be very conscious with your time. 
and the relationships you build, the life you want to live. And there's a great analog to that to the world that we live and play in in business where it's the same thing with your customers. You don't want like your relationship with your customers to peak, you know, right when they buy your product and then have it go on the decline ever since. I think for me, I hadn't really framed like the active management of relationships personally that clearly and like, oh, wow, if I want to have a different curve than the average, I actually really need to be very conscious about it. If I just like let life take me where it's going to take me, that's how things are going to end up. And that's not where I want to end up. You know what I mean? Right. The most consistent thing in my time would be time spent with Starbucks baristas. (laughs) Well, I read I read a great article during my dying time. I did try to stay off and not read work related articles, but I found this article from Anu Alturu who was the head of community at Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. Please come on the show. We're going to reach out and ask you to come on the show. And she had these 25 lessons of everything she learned during her time building Clubhouse. I think she was the first employee other than the founders, Mm -hmm. right? So just had incredible journey within there and saw all of the things they did to continue to scale and, and grow. So go read it, 25 lessons. There's two things, Kip, I wanted to kind of draw your attention to. One, I think she did a really good job, one of the best jobs, describing the difference between product-led growth and community-led growth, because I've had issue with this. Mm, so You have a pet rock here, yeah. You should go read this, the audience go read this, but she describes PLG as a best product wins approach mm-hmm. and community-led growth as a best recommendation wins approach. Ooh, which I love. I like that. Yeah. I love that. You product-led growth, you are building a product to facilitate growth and be the heart of the go-to-market. Community-led growth, you're building a community that will continue to recommend your product to their network. But the one thing I wanted to kind of touch on before we get into distribution, because we talked about this, is sometimes the other lesson she had was sometimes ROI isn't the best measure for success. Hell yes. And so when isn't it the best measure for success when you're trying to do something experimental or you have some Mm -hmm. sort of creative initiative that you want to get off the ground. And she talks about the fact that you should measure inputs versus outputs, measure impact expected versus impact delivered. Mm -hmm. And it's a good reminder for everyone when you are trying to build true scale, you do have to have some things that are experimental, some things that go against the grain. Hey, what a great name for a podcast. (laughs) Hey, hey. And actually not hold them accountable to ROI, hold them accountable to some Mm. other types of metrics, because if you hold them accountable to ROI at the start, you're going to just kill them. And so I thought she had really incredible lessons for everyone. Go read that post. Hopefully, we'll have her on the podcast very soon. Yeah, New, come on the pod, man. We'd love to have you. All right. So for today's show, for everybody listening, we have a hot topic today. One of the questions that Kieran and I get asked more than anything else is about distribution, about how do you get your product or service out there in a really effective way, in a cost-effective way, and wow, is it hard. And folks are always like, hey, Kieran, hey, Kip, you guys built this at HubSpot, and it went really well. Like, Can you just tell me how to do it at HubSpot? And the first thing I tell you is, no, I'm not going to tell you how to do it at HubSpot because I wouldn't do it that same way again. That's the first thing everybody needs to know is that I would do some of those things again, but I would do a lot of things fundamentally very, very different. That if you were trying to build a world-class distribution playbook today, one, you've got to think about scale and how it's going to work because most distribution playbooks are very short term. And two, you have to approach it with the channels and the what we would call arbitrage, kind of unfair opportunities of the here and now. We built the HubSpot playbook on the arbitrage opportunities of a decade ago. Now you have to kind of think about what are those same arbitrage opportunities today. And Kieran, I know this is a topic that you are 
fundamentally obsessed with. You get asked about countless times a day, candidly, and you recently dropped a Twitter thread on this topic. Let's walk everybody through the thread and let's have a little debate about what we agree, what we disagree on, what we would have everybody do to build a modern, scalable distribution strategy for their company. Right. I think the more interesting conversation for us to have is if we had to build a similar scale of demand engine today, what would be the same and what would be different? Because it's easy to go back over and talk about all of the things that work for HubSpot, but we are in a different age and how we would yes. do that today is much, much different. So what, what I talked about in the Twitter thread were some of the fundamentals. The fact that we had a guide in principle that you set for the marketing team, which is how we deliver 10x the value for free. We always thought about future consumer trends. We always had a really good gauge on what channels were saturated and why we really invested in A-plus talent. And we always had a strong narrative for the C-suite and board of how we were growing and how we were mm -hmm. going to grow within the future. And so when I think about what's the same, I'll throw out three that I think are still the same. And then I think what would be really cool for our audience is like, what is different? If we had to build this in the future, what is different? So what's the same? I think the same is still that notion of value creation before value extraction. Mm -hmm. Nailed it. That is the guide in principle. That's that 10x value for free. Like how do you create value before you extract value in terms of converting people into customers? The second, I think, is always a true for building something that scales. How do you pick consumer trends that are growing in popularity? versus decline in unpopularity. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it there. We picked educational media. We did the kind of decentralization of educational media as the internet grew in popularity. That was a growing consumer trend and we benefited from that. And then tactically, things haven't changed in terms of your core marketing channels, search content, paid marketing partnerships. They still would drive a substantial part of a company's demand. Mm -hmm. They're just much more competitive and much, much saturated. And I'm not sure, could we today build as large of an engine from these four things if we were faced with a similar amount of competition. So I want to hand it over to you. Uh, first of all, let, let me know if there's other things that you think I've missed and what is the same. And I would love to kick it off with some of your thoughts on what would be different? What do you think would be different from someone who's had such a huge impact in building all of this stuff for HubSpot? I will add one more thing on the same, Kieran, and I think it's the category creation side of things. You know, we created a category in the early days of HubSpot called inbound marketing, and we always wanted this to be a transformational business versus a better mousetrap business. I think we would try to create a category again if we were doing that because it just sets and roots you from being differentiated from the start as long as there's right. good kind of pragmatic reasons in the world that you need to create that category. You're not just making it up, but the technology shifts and, have, and changes have enabled that. And we've talked about that on a past episode, but I do think that's the same. Let me talk to you about what I think would be fundamentally different about what we would do right now. If I was building a world-class scalable distribution engine today, what would I do? Well, one, it would be an influence-heavy distribution engine versus a direct response-heavy distribution engine. That would be the biggest difference. And I want to see if you agree with this or disagree with this in a minute. One of the secrets that we did 10 to 12 years ago at HubSpot is that we were first movers for arbitrage opportunities on channels. That was, we were really early in the Google SEO game. We we're really early in social, right? And we use the influence of social right. platforms like Twitter, Reddit, Dig, all of those things to help us scale. And, and so we played an influence game there. We were doing way more influence and perception management then than, than most companies. I think I would take that very, very heavily up. So one is I would keep doing 
where I thought the new channel opportunities and arbitrage was. But all of those new channels are much more influenced than they are direct response, right? And that's one thing that I think everybody needs to understand. The next thing is the early days of HubSpot, it was a very text-based strategy, right? It was like, hey, we're going to package text together for Google search and for social media, which was very text-heavy at the time. I think we would have a video-first strategy if we were building a modern distribution platform and strategy today, where we would do video first, we would take audio out of that video and have an audio strategy, and text would be a part of it, but text wouldn't be 95% of it. It would be, you know, 45% of it or or 35% of it versus the big, huge majority. So I think we would go video first instead of text first. That's one of the things that we would do. The third thing is... I think we would obsess about ad arbitrage opportunities. So for example, like I think we'd spend a lot of time on like TikTok ads, right? Hmm. There's a great thread I read this week while you were out, Kieran, by Nicholas Bauer over in the UK who runs a TikTok ad agency. We should have him on the show. Nick, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the show. And he's got a great thread on how he and his team created three of the top five TikTok ads for household products using creative that costs $5.35. Wow. Right. Like that is a really good like arbitrage opportunity of how do you actually package low cost content? And what they did is they had a really good influencer outreach strategy to make those ads way more successful. And that brings me to kind of my last point on what I think we would do different is we would lean very heavily into influencers and creators today versus what we did. We could do most of the things ourselves. Mm. We had some influencers and partners. We worked with Chris Brogan and Seth Godin, Guy Kawasaki and Mari Smith and all kinds of amazing people. And that helped. But wow, we would work with a much broader group of influencers and creators all across our market today. Those are the things that I think we would do differently. Right. Do you agree, disagree, have things you would add? What do you think? I think I have some, I don't know if they're controversial towards HubSpot ourselves. <laughs> Ooh, please. So the thing that you said, which is, Why I think we were successful and everything you've described somewhat is related to that is how do you be early in consumer trends? Yes. And those consumer trends, we've talked about it before. Marketing channels are a accelerant of consumer trends. So like all these different things are how do you be early within those channels? Because you see the consumer trends are going towards those channels. The thing that you are describing, there's a couple of things that I think are interesting. There are some places we were not good, but because we were so early, we kind of got a lot of leverage that we didn't need to be good. So I don't think we were good in the early days and things like search, right? Because we were just so good at content and we were one of the first brands to really do content, we didn't need to lead into search as much as we did later on in our kind of marketing journey. And so I think we would actually have to be much, much more diligent in some of these places because it's so much more competitive, right? And I think search is one of those things. The other thing that you were describing, and I'm really interested to get your take on this, is you mentioned the kind of influence versus direct response. Do you think we would need to have been a much more indirect marketing? Like we've always been very much accountable to revenue, like directly attributed to revenue. That is really how marketing has worked within HubSpot and a lot of the marketing team's efforts directly are attributed to the revenue we created, which is why I've always loved working in this company because you were directly accountable for the revenue. A lot of the things that you've described are actually much more indirect, like they influence the sale, but it's hard to actually directly tie them back to revenue. How do you think about that? If you had to set up the team today, would you set up the team in a more kind of balanced way between indirect and direct? Or do you think you could still be very much more focused on like direct revenue and directly accountable for customer conversion? 
if we were going to do the same thing, you're, you're like, oh, would we still have this directly attributable model, Karen? Uh, I know us, <laughs> and what I would say is there's no way we could build any engine like this without a directly attributable model, right? Yes. I think we have to do it that way. I think what we would build would be different. And for better or worse, like all this stuff in my head, I try to kind of categorize and organize it, you know? And I think of the original distribution strategy we built, we built kind of really kind of in this middle layer of product and education direct response. I actually think what we would do is we would build a layer above that that was very high influence that led to that next phase. So we would get really good at modeling like, oh, cool. Well, we know we need three viral videos on TikTok this week to hit our kind of core direct and referral traffic goals. So we would reverse engineer all of that to basically say, oh, here are the kind of the influence, persuasive, non-direct marketing work that needs to happen that we know is going to cause enough people to come to that direct work that we're trying to do and monetize and everything. So I think we would still measure the same thing. It would just, quite frankly, be a little bit more complicated because it'd be like a two-tiered approach to it Mm. where it's like, oh, we're building out this distribution influence up at the top that we're going to funnel into this like next stage of kind of direct response work. Do you agree or disagree with that? I agree. I think the important thing you said there, and I want to kind of just make sure our listeners understand, I think why you said that is we likely couldn't have built this unless it was directly attributed to revenue. Why couldn't we have Mm -hmm. built it? Because marketing will struggle to get any meaningful investment when it cannot show meaningful results. Yes. And that is always the problem with like having a model that is very much more indirect and influencing revenue. It's much harder to invest in things because they're not directly tied to company growth. When it's directly tied to company growth, then you actually can reinvest some of that budget and resources to invest within marketing to keep on scaling that engine. I also think that a lot of the things that seem indirect today will likely have better tooling and things in the future that will make them much easier to convert. Yes. So if I think about the first iteration of HubSpot, like it seems pretty basic now that you can go to a blog, create content, <laughs> and then have something that is much more long form and convert them into that long form mm-hmm. content. Like that path we really instrumented and got great at. But blogs were not seen as a core part of a demand gen engine when HubSpot started, right? And a lot of these channels were not seen as core demand gen engines. And so I think a lot of those indirect channels today will become much more direct within the future. As marketers get better at using them, as they get better at optimizing them, as they get better trying to figure out how to convert some of that traffic and awareness into actual customers. Well, Kieran, I think that is a key and brilliant point that you just raised. Because not only were blogs not thought about that back in the day, you remember the blog conversion rate back in the day. It was pretty bad. You're right. Right? Like, we didn't know what we were doing. It was pretty garbage. You assume that all this stuff back in the early days is like rainbows and unicorns, but it's not. That was horrible. And it took us, if I remember, like a couple years to really get it in a scalable quality way. And that's the exact point you're making here. Also, whether it be TikTok, whether it be YouTube, whether it be some other channel, there's a path to getting that to work. And it's going to take a while. And quite frankly, it's always taken a while to say, hey, I've built this audience through valuable content and information. And now this is how I'm going to get them to create some business value as part of that. And it seems obvious with the blog now. It was very non-obvious a decade ago. And the same thing is going to happen with a lot of the popular channels today. I think that is a very, very key point for everybody listening. This is why there is a best practice trap, right? If you're like, oh, the best practices are I can only use this channel in this way, then you will fail. You have to say, no, no, I want to bend this channel to my will and figure out how to make it work for me. 
And if I can do that, then I can be different. I can be better than everybody else. The other thing I think we would have, we did do this, but I think we would have started with this if we were doing it in 2022 is product-led growth. Yes, I agree. I think we would have built some sort of freemium version of our tool from the get-go. Why would we have done that? Because PLG is really just a natural evolution of inbound. Inbound really was, hey, there's a consumer trend where consumers want more of the power. They want to educate themselves. They want to learn mm-hmm. about the software, but they still in the original concept had to ask the budget owner, could they use the software within their company? Could they buy it? So they could consume all the content. They could love HubSpot for all of those different reasons, but they actually couldn't use the software back then because there was a paid version of it. Whereas product-led growth, I think, is the evolution of inbound where it's not just you can educate yourself on the software. Hey, you can actually use this thing without asking anyone to actually want to use that. And I think we would have invested in that from get-go. I think if we were doing this today, would have obsessed over what is the use case that has virality that we can really instrument Mm -hmm. within that freemium app. And that would give us another channel to actually acquire customers. One of the things I wanted to ask you actually was transformational business versus better mousetrap. Yeah. HubSpot really in the early days, most of our brand kind of efforts went into the category creation. Yeah, they did. Like if you actually talk in the, you know, maybe the first three to five years. Oh, if I would say first five to seven years, yeah. And you said, hey, who are HubSpot? Hey, they're this company. They're a media company talking about inbound marketing and teaching <laughs> us to do inbound marketing. Yep. Do you not know they have a software what? <laughs> no. So if you're starting today, you're creating the category, would you change anything about the balance between category creation versus HubSpot brand? I think we had the best problem you could have. And the best problem you could have is a lot of people knowing you, but not knowing what you did, mm. you know, which is the problem that you described, right? Most startups, if you think about it, have the exact opposite problem. It's like, the people who know them know exactly what they do. They just don't have very many people who know about them in the world, right? And I would not do it differently. Quite frankly, that it turns out that that is actually a very solvable problem. And we solved that problem within like 12 to 18 months of just like right. ramped up product marketing and like content strategy evolution, right? That is way, way right. easier of a problem to fix than the people not knowing about you. So no, my advice on this is if you are creating this category, remember that your first principle here is that apathy is losing. Like if people just don't know about you, don't care about you, you're losing. And so most companies, most CEOs, most marketers get obsessed with like, no, 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 you don't understand. My product marketing has to be right. And everybody needs to know the perfect value proposition of my product. And I kind of think that's bullshit. Like, yeah, in a perfect world, you're right. Everybody in the world would know perfectly exactly what your product does. But that is just fundamentally not true. And if you take a beat and look at the world right now, what you would say is, oh, it's easier today to help people care about my company and my brand because of these awesome channels of distribution. It's harder today to educate people on my product because I've really got to have this like deeper engagement with them either through a product-led experience or through my website. And so why don't I first make sure I can get them interested in the brand, what we're about, the value we're trying to create, and then demonstrate the product. Also, Kieran, by the way, if HubSpot had had PLG, we wouldn't have had this problem. Right. If we'd done product-led growth, we wouldn't have had this problem. 100%. Because people would have been like, oh, use this thing for free. What is this? Oh, they do software. It, it, it would have solved that problem today in a way that we just couldn't and didn't solve it back in the day. Yeah. Your argument would be it's easier to solve a perception problem than an awareness problem. Yes. Yes. And I think the other one that's very similar to that is it's, you and I believe this, it's way easier to solve a conversion problem than an acquisition problem. Yes. And so they're 
kind of two things for our listeners to understand is like, once you have a lot of awareness, getting users to understand what your product is, is much easier than getting the awareness in the first place. When you have a lot of people, visitors and leads and users, it's much easier to convert those into something meaningful for your business to get them in the first place. And I think they're the two things, if you really solve for awareness, solve for acquisition and audience, much easier to solve for perception and conversion. HubSpot kind of did do PLG. Kira, really Kira, Kira, hold on, hold on, hold on. I know where you're going and I want to go there. But before, before we go there, I think you make a really good point here that I want everybody to understand. You and I, we've done this for a long time. I would say that we've spent 90% of our time talking about how to get access to an audience really cheaply and about 10% of our time worried about conversion rate. Right. It just turns 100%. out that like once you have an audience, you like 90% of the time can figure out how to convert them in an effective and monetizable way. Right. Yes, occasionally you can't, but the vast, vast majority of the time you can. And the reality is that most marketing teams spend that time in the exact inverse Right? They spend 90% of their time obsessed with the conversion rates, 10% about getting in front of distributing the audience, and that is why they fail. Right. I couldn't agree more. I've spent time with founders who are trying to increase their conversion rate on a thousand visits a month. Like <laughs> that is literally laughable. You can solve conversion rate. There is nothing external that you need to rely yes, on to solve yes. conversion rate. With acquisition, you actually are relying on all these third-party channels and you have much more competition. I never worry about conversion rate. If you give me a large audience, I'll figure out conversion. I know you agree with that and think the same. I think coming back to the PLG part, actually, if you think about it, before PLG was PLG, HubSpot was doing freemium apps and tools, yes, like yes. our website grader and all of these different tools. And so that was our version of PLG. It just converted into leads versus users, worked really, really well. On that, Kieran, on the website grader thing, it was interesting. I was talking with Harry Stebbins over at 20 Minute VC, and he was asking, what was the biggest kind of marketing mistake you made? And I think our biggest marketing mistake was trying to push website grader too far and not moving into PLG. Mm. We thought website grader could scale more in distribution than it could, right. and it couldn't. It was like this kind of like solid baseline of distribution, but to really get to that next step of growth, we needed to move to PLG. Yeah. And so I think for companies, especially if you're a SaaS company listening out there, the ideal scenario is having this marriage of product-led growth with maybe a couple free lightweight utilities that help supercharge and superpower your distribution. Yes. And then I wonder what you think about this. So I think the last thing that would have been different for us, if we had won all the same things again, so we had built this transformational business, mm -hmm. we had managed to convince a lot of people to see the world in the way that we saw the world. One of the things that we often don't discuss, the reason that works so well for HubSpot is in the early days, the HubSpot talk track was really spoke to a marketer and a marketer mm -hmm. not wanting to feel like this pushy annoyance, right? Like how yeah. you actually really felt about your career. We had some really great stats about marketers were thought of, the general consumer thought that they were worse than politicians, did not believe them. And they thought all those things because of the way that marketing acted. Yeah. And so we really tied that into, hey, you want to be better, we want to make you better. And so we had this really obsessed audience. What would be different today is we would hopefully have better tooling on how to utilize that community for much, much more. Yes, we would be way better at community. Right, I think community would be much better. And I think it would be much better not because we didn't see the value in community. The thing that mm -hmm. holds community back today is really tooling. A great community is a collection of very small communities, right? You just have such a plethora yeah. of different people within those communities. And you have to serve those communities and small communities in much different ways. And to do that, I think we need better tooling. We need different ways to segment our communities. We need different ways that we can actually add value to those communities. And so I think that's the other thing that I think would be different today. Couldn't agree more. Okay. 
let's wrap it up for everybody, right? So we started out with this kind of core taken notion that if you were going to build this world-class way to distribute your product today, you would do it very differently than it happened 10 years ago. And you would take advantages of the core early adopter arbitrage opportunities of today, right? And so if you are out there and you are thinking about doing this, what we're recommending to you is, first of all, understanding that there are really competitive channels like Google search and everything that you need to play in, but they can't be your primary channel. And so you're going to have to figure out how to win largely with video first instead of text first. That's, I think, one of the things we believe. You're going to win more with community than without community. You're going to still build a very attributable, instrumented growth marketing engine, but that it's going to be a little bit more complex because of the types of channels that exist. You're going to obsess about distribution more than conversion rate. Know that you're going to fix conversion rate down the road, that the conversion rate is much easier to fix. And you're going to think about, should I create a new category or at bare minimum, get mass scale distribution with my audience, Mm. even if it's not perfectly telling everybody exactly what my product is and product does. Do you agree with all those things? Is that the advice we're giving everybody today? I agree with that. Anything else you want to add? No, I think we covered the fundamentals, which stay the same. What you were really mm-hmm. trying to do scale, the value creation, the consumer trends, the arbitrage opportunities. The one thing is curious that you and I, because what we love and are obsessed by, that we haven't mentioned anything about crypto. <laughs> we would obviously launch a coin. <laughs> no, we totally would. <laughs> now we're going to do an episode without crypto. What we said and what we would recommend everybody do is to keep a very close eye on emerging technology. Mm, And we would run tests and most of them would fail, but we would find one or two things that really hit and that would help us ignite our growth and scale for sure. There you have it. Okay. So that was another episode of Marketing Against the Grain. If you are building a modern distribution machine, we wanted to give you some real tips to get started, to scale it, to build a great enduring company that you want to build. If you have any questions, you want any clarity on this, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts with those questions. We we can do a follow-up episode. We can go into much more detail. But until next time, I hope that everyone has a great week. We'll see you next time on Marketing Against the Grain. 